Hi everyone and welcome to the Poema podcast. Uh, I am James Prescott, your host. Welcome back to the show. I'm um, really glad you're all here again. Um, and uh, today is another new guest. We seem to have a lot of them this year. Uh, and it's the, another person that I've met through through social media. I seem to connect with a lot of people there. Um, uh, Thomas Floyd, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you for, uh, you know, Twitter, for all of Twitter's crazy things, it does have a way of uniting people if you find the right kind of people. So I'm glad Twitter brought us together. Yeah. And we found each other, as I found a lot of people, through this um, deconstruction coffee hour thing that uh, our mutual friend Megan um, and Courtland run each week. Most weeks, anyway, um, and um, I remember you speaking. I remember you speaking in one of those one of those meetings, and I speak in them quite often. Uh, but I remember you speaking in one of them, and I thought, "Oh, this guy's interesting. I'd love to hear his story." You know, so uh, mm. and that's kind of how it came about. So um, here we are. Um, yeah, it's good to have you here. So yeah, you're going to tell us a bit of a bit of your story, Thomas. Sure. Yeah, I'd love to. So, you know, my name's, my first name's Thomas, uh, last name Floyd, and I grew up in South America, actually. So my, my parents, my mom is, uh, Chilean. My dad's American, but had lived in South America most of his life. So I, I was born in Santiago, Chile. Uh, and so I, I lived a, the first 11 years of my life down there and, you know, I grew up in probably what would be considered Pentecostal Christianity. So they were they were affiliated with a set of churches that were, I don't know how familiar you are with Assemblies of God, but it was like Assemblies of God stuff. So Assemblies of God in, in South America, which I've come to find that Assemblies of God in South America is very different than Assemblies of God in the U.S. But um so yeah, I I grew up in that in that kind of space. I um, I think growing up I had a you know I don't remember anything that was you know popping as 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 terrible or bad. But as I you know we moved to Greenville, South Carolina, and then Charlotte um, when I was eleven, twelve years old, and you know my story is that. I've always been fascinated with the divine and with God. Like uh, even in my, even in my age of deconstruction and rethinking what my faith was, there's always like, I was the kid that would like stay up at night and like read his Bible, not because I had to, but because I was fascinated with what the text would say. Right. <laughs> <laughs> which is mm, yeah yeah and so even if my idea and we can talk about this later on but even if my ideas about what the text is or what the text is trying to tell us there's always been this kind of i think pull for the divine and for god uh and in, in in ways that are probably not super normal for a eight to ten year old uh you know but I'm also just a little bit about me. I don't know how familiar you are with the Enneagram, but I'm, a, oh, yes, I'm an I'm Enneagram. Enneagram. Yeah. <laughs> I'm an Enneagram four. So a lot you of do. that is. Yeah. Four or five <laughs> wing. Yeah. Yeah. I have a three wing, but, um, but I, I do my five wing. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I think I, I lean more three than I do, than I do five, but that's also another part of my story because um, when I was in my mid twenties, I found the Enneagram through, uh, the liturgists. I don't know if you've heard of the liturgists. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't listen to, to them as quite anymore, but they were very formational for me when I first started asking questions and rethinking what it meant to, I don't know whatever language you want to use, follow Jesus or think about faith or Christianity. You know, I remember the first time I, I think it was episode two 
where Mike and and Michael were talking about uh, being able to be a Christian and not and also believing in evolution. I know that now that sounds so silly to me, but when I first heard that, I was so steeped in a kind of Christian fundamentalism that when I heard that, I was like, I I didn't even know this was an option, you know? Yeah. Uh, I didn't even know that. Um, and for me and my Christian upbringing, the scientific part was a piece of it, but also... I don't know how familiar you are with charismatic Christianity, but there are a lot of ties to like nationalism and God and country and like Israel and the role of Israel and America together. And, and so for me, a lot of my asking questions started to do with, with this whole thing about nationalism and the way that we defended, uh, America at all costs and and the connection between the Republican Party here in the United States, you know, the Republican Party and, and God, you know, you know, it was it was never an option to 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 be a little more left leaning. It was never an option to really to really do that stuff because that 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 level of thinking was associated with kind of a, an anti God rhetoric. So, um, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Those are, those are, when I think about my story, that's what I think of. I, I did a, um, I was in IT for a while and that I was kind of done with doing IT stuff. And so I went to school to become a therapist. And so that's what I do now. I'm a clinical mental health counselor. I, I have my own private, it's a group private practice with two other there's three clinicians total. So it's me and two other clinicians. And, you know, we help people navigate the hard things in life, you know, whether that's marriage issues or family troubles or trauma. A lot of my training is in trauma and, um, and the way trauma affects us. And, yeah. and I see a, I see a, a good amount of people that are, um, that have been really hurt by the church. Um, you know, there's a lot of spiritual trauma and spiritual abuse. So that's kind of my niche. Um, and I'm a, I'm a little bit of every, I, I do a little bit of everything. I, I found that for me as a four and as somebody that that's a little more creative, anything that is too static or too the same, I, I get a little bored with. And so, I like seeing people from all kinds of walks of life. Um, but my story is really one in which, as it, as it pertains to spirituality, um, I've realized that I feel like I know less about God today in the way that was taught to me. You know, knowledge like I, I have less grasp of what God is, but I'm more okay with that. I'm more okay with the fact that I don't, I don't know if he answers prayer or I don't know if like I'm asking just more questions than, than I have answers. And I think a healthy spirituality should do that. So absolutely. Anyways, yeah. well, what I mean, questions I... do you have with that? I know I was a little all over the place there, but. No, no, that's great. I mean, like, so much to dive into there. Like, I love the idea of the, the more you kind of the more you know, the more you grow, the less you you know, kind of thing. For sure, that's definitely been my experience too. The more I've gone on this journey, and the more I've grown and healed, and all of that, the less I realize I know about everything, mm-hmm. and. And that is really positive because it means you're more teachable and it means you're going to grow. Um, mm. And it, mean, it makes you more teachable as a person because when you realize that actually, you know what, I don't know much. <laughs> Even if you keep learning and growing, you'll still want to keep learning and growing because you will know 
Mm-hmm. You actually don't know as much as you think that we don't know as much as we think we do. Um, and that's a really important mark of growth, actually. I so agree. Something I always look for when people, like when people, when people come and say, like, you know, I'm, I'm realizing I, I don't know as much as I thought I did. That's, that's a, that's a positive, a positive thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I find that I'm, I find that I'm just as curious, but not about, not about the things that I used to be curious about. Like before I, as it pertains to, to just faith and, and God, like I, I always want, it seemed as though I was in some ways obsessed with knowing or hearing his voice. Like in Pentecostal circles, there's this whole chatter about, are you hearing the voice of God, right? Yeah, and, I remember. I was, so I was part and, of something similar, yeah. <laughs> and that, I don't know how much, or if any of your guests have talked about like attachment science and being attached to God and the different attachment styles. No, I, but, um, I talked about attachment styles a little bit, but I'd love to hear that in relation to God because that's something I haven't talked about here before. So, yeah. Sure. It, yeah. And if you, another cool potential guest for you would be, um, I don't know if you've heard of Crispin Mayfield. But he's out in, in oh, Portland, yeah, no, I've Oregon. Wife. I've interviewed his wife. Um, oh, okay. So uh, cool. For the podcast. Uh, I'd like to interview so him he, as well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he wrote I'm a book. Please, please, you're welcome to come on the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he wrote a book about um, about this. And, and anyways. But yeah, so I think this is a very simplified version of it. There are, there are people with PhDs that, uh, we'll talk about this much more eloquently, but I think the simple version is that um, we want a secure attachment style. And a secure attachment style with God is one in which we are content in being alone and in being who we are and going about our life. But also we have a desire to connect with this person that we call God or the divine or whatever name we might assign to God, right? Um, unfortunately, that rarely is what is presented to us in any kind of evangelical, at at least, I I don't want to assume to speak for the whole world, but at least in the American expression of that, um, what I would say that the attachment style that I grew up with as it pertains to God is what's called an anxious attachment style, a preoccupied or anxious, which is this this ever living desperation for God to come down and to make his presence known and for him to reveal, which, which can really, I'll keep it PG 13 and not use cuss words, but it can really screw somebody up, you know, because you are continuously thinking that it's on you that you don't feel God's presence close to you or that God's not speaking to you or, all of these other things that come. So it's it's kind of a desperation. Now, the other side of that is you have a, a what's considered an avoidant or a withdrawn attachment mm-hmm. style, yeah. which is um which is that you know God is never there, he's distant, and you don't really try to reach out to him because you don't you all don't have this kind of relationship. Um so an avoidant attachment style, like in real life, people that, and by the way, I do want to clarify, all of this is on a spectrum. So just because someone, someone could be avoidant and then you could have another person that's avoidant and they could look very differently. So all of this looks different for different people. But I would say that, um, that a balance of, of both is really, really necessary. You don't want to be so desperate that you can't ever live, that you can't be content. But at the same time, you don't want to be so logical and left brain oriented and so um, unaware that emotions and feelings are part of the human experience. And and as a couples therapist, I see this, you know, I see this in, in couples. 
because a lot of couples have this dynamic where you have somebody that is preoccupied uh, and another person that's avoidant. So the preoccupied person is always pursuing the avoidant person. And as the avoidant person feels the pursuit, they withdraw even more. <laughs> and so it's this, it's the, right, it's this endless dance as, um, as Sue Johnson, who is the, real, the, the mother of emotionally focused therapy. Um, she wrote Hold Me Tight and she's written a few other books. But I would say that a healthy relationship with God would be one in which we know and understand our value and how loved we are. At the same time, we are also willing to engage with him by having a conversation with him at times. Now, that that's different for different people, like especially for those that are deconstructing. I'll be honest with you. I didn't. I still to this day have a hard time. And I'm, I know we're not video recording, but I'm putting it in quotations like opening up my Bible and reading scripture like that to me is still I don't connect to God in that way oftentimes because there's so much damage in the way I was told that I had to read scripture to get closer to God. And so I have to be very careful with the Bible and scripture because um, I know that you're a friend of KJ, but as KJ says, you can't heal in the same place that you were hurt. It's impossible to, it's very hard to heal in the same environment where all the pain occurred, which is why I get I get really annoyed with people that are like, why are people leaving the church? You know, all of this kind of stuff. It's like, well, they're leaving because they're trying to survive and get away from the toxicity of what happened in those church environments. And so, you know, I personally, I don't go to a Sunday morning expression of church and, um, I probably will go back at some point, but I'm not rushing that because for me, it doesn't, it doesn't do good things. <laughs> it doesn't do good things for me. Yeah. And so regardless of where you are on your journey, like healing can look very different for different people. And anyways, I could say a lot more, but what, what are, what do you think about that? I'm I'm fascinated by it because I, I I've done a bit of reading around different attachment styles um, before. Um, the weird thing is I never thought about it in terms of my relationship with God, which is strange. But um, but you're right, you know. And I, part of my deconstruction was well, I use the word deconstruction. I think it's bigger than that. That was, um, but my journey is has been unlearning codependency um mm -hmm. codependent relationships oh, yeah. codependent relationships with 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 friends codependent relationships with partners codependent relationships with the divine um um and because i was very codependent and um my relationship with the divine was really difficult at one point because i expected them to um I expected, I had an idea of God where kind of everyone, everyone gets what they deserve, kind of, you know, so if I've been, if I've suffered, then I get some, then there has to be consequences, you know, like, um, when actually that's not who God, who the divine is. And I had to let go of that, that idea of that, that idea of who God, of, of, of the divine. Um, in order well, I have to so many thoughts on that. I Sorry? have so many thoughts on I was sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I was just going to say I have so many thoughts on that. Oh, <laughs> I'd love to hear them. Well, what I heard there was uh, like punishment, right? This idea of if you've done something wrong, there needs to be a consequence for what happened, which would, which is what I would call not unconditional love, but conditional love. Like, yeah. I don't know if you heard this growing up, but for me, it was like, you know, God loves unconditionally. Well, 
that wasn't what was modeled to many of us. Hmm. And so you, as it pertains to codependency, you start kind of fixating on being perfect or doing the right things for people and being there for people because, uh, especially with, with my own upbringing, you know, if I messed up or if I didn't do something right, the punishment and the consequence didn't actually fit what was done. <laughs> it was it was proportionally augmented. And so it wasn't actually a, a fair, quote unquote, co- consequence. And so I think that, um, yeah, I totally, I, I'm with you on the codependency thing. That's something that I've had to, I've, I've had to unlearn and I'm still working on that. It's not something it's like, and I want to be careful about using addiction language, but for me, I actually do see it as an addiction. Um, If, if you, it's like, I will always have a tendency to want to please and make people happy and do everything for them. And I, I have to fight. Oh, it's not my job to do that. They didn't ask me to do that. We're not best friends. I don't have to do that for them, right? It's it's an unlearning that you have to do. Um, so I don't know if that's your experience or not, but that that's been my experience. Yeah, it's been a little bit of my experience. I, I was a people, bit of a people pleaser, always trying to do the right thing. That was a role I assigned to myself from very young because I I, mean, I was living in a traumatic home. I was getting bullied as well at school. Um, I was not. I was not cared for well as a teenager. Um, and I just assigned myself that role of it's my job to look after everybody else and I don't matter. Um, yeah. And I just have to do the right thing all the time. And that's the only way I can get through, you know. Uh, and again, being taught at church that uh, yeah, unconditional love of God, but oh, oh, by the way, you have to do this and have to do that and have to do that. Um, to be forgiven, so not really unconditional. Um, yeah, and the whole thing that I, I went through a lot of trauma and people hurt me, and and I was always I had a lot for a long time. I had a lot of anger at the divine for not for not making the people who did that to me suffer for not for there not being any consequences for those people um, mm. for them getting all the good things in life that I wanted and me not getting them. Uh, and then kind of getting rewarded for what for the suffering they caused me. And it took a lot of therapy <laughs> and spiritual direction <clears throat> to get past that. You know, I did get past it. Um, and it freed me in a lot of ways. And, you know, I'm still kind of recalibrating my relationship with the divine um, mm. and what that looks like. And, uh, you know, and, 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 but it's, but the good thing is that I am actually free of that toxic understanding of, of the divine where, mm-hmm. where you have to earn everything and where um, they, they intervene, you know, the interventionist God, um, which is, it just isn't a reality. Um, it certainly wasn't for me. So, yeah. Yes. I, I also think, you know, I, uh, spiritual direction has been really helpful for me. Um, I have an excellent spiritual director and I was telling her last year, I said, you know, my issue with God, her name's Michelle. I said, my issue with God, Michelle, is that I would never do to my worst enemy what I feel like God is doing to me, Um, which is not being present, which is being distant, which is I reach out and I never hear back from him, right? All of these things. And my spiritual director said just a really insightful thing that I will never forget. I mean, it was that impactful. And she said to me, what if, um, what if what you consider God's silence and God's absence is actually God's kindness and not engaging in the kind of relationship that you want 
because that relationship is built upon performance and saying the right things and doing the right things. And what if God's absence is, um, is actually God's invitation to a deeper kind of spirituality that is much healthier than the spirituality you're asking him to engage with. And when she said that, I mean, I was just, I didn't even know what to say to that, except that it rang true. It, it rang true. I, I was, I was mad and upset that God wasn't meeting me in the ways I wanted him to meet me because I was, um, I was trying to engage with God in the unhealthy patterns that that I had learned as a way to cope. But you know what I was considering God's silence was you know what my spiritual director was trying to encourage me to do is to think about it as maybe God's not being maybe God's silence is an invitation to a spirituality where you're seen and loved for who you are not for what you do. And um, that was really impactful for me when she said that. Yeah, that's powerful. That's powerful. I, I had a very good spiritual director. Uh, I'm in between spiritual directors right now. Um, but for the last seven, six, seven years, I've had an incredible spiritual director, really. Um, and I, like, I barely recognize the the version of me that went to her seven years, six, seven years ago, <laughs> you know, to who I, to have become now. And I, I think back and think, wow, gosh, you know, um, it's incredible really. And they've been a huge part of that, that journey for me. Um, of yes. unlearning and relearning and, um, leaning more into my intuition, um, becoming more, naturally um non-dualistic um yes well getting rid of either or and kind of more intuitively going to the both and um the inclusive mm. path um and yeah being open to a different kind of spirituality and they've just they've gone with it you know and they've been really supportive and yeah a good spiritual director can really help I really do recommend that to people. It's like, for me, it was like spiritual therapy. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, they were really helped. They were really supportive when I started to leave my church and, you know, and uh, move on to different things, uh, different spiritual community, um, and really guided me through that and helped me navigate that. And through my entire kind of spiritual journey of the last few years, the, um, well, I think I call it my spiritual awakening. I think that's what it is, really. Mm. Which part of deconstruction is part of that, but it's not the whole the whole part of that. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I think too. One of the one of the things that's been really important in this journey for me has been the permission to trust myself and to trust my uh, my intuition and what I'm thinking is the right thing to do. Because as somebody that's kind of studied trauma and, and knows a, a bit about the way trauma works, Peter Levine is one of the biggest voices in the trauma world. He's written a few books, and in one of his books he says, Trauma has a way of forcing you to be someone you're not. That's that's really one of the worst things about trauma, that it forces you to be someone you're not. And you learn to not trust yourself. You learn to not trust your own intuition. And for me, part of what my spiritual exercise is, you know, I don't do devotions in the morning like I was told to do growing up. I don't go to church on Sunday mornings because really I don't want to at this stage of my life, but I find myself having moments where I become really intentional with God. And I don't know that I say, Oh God, like help me with this. But I, 
it's as if I just become aware of his presence or their presence or her presence. I'm aware of their, um, I'm just aware. Like I'm aware that I'm not like there is a greater force in this universe and that force is not me. (laughs) And, um, you know, I think that there's a balance between desire and duty. And I think, and the Enneagram is really helpful for this because there are certain numbers that lean so hardcore into duty that they should probably lean into a little more desire. And then there are certain Enneagram numbers that lean so much into desire and what they want to do that they should probably tap into a little duty. But for me, so much of what I did for a majority of my life was based on what I needed to do, what I was told to do. It was so duty oriented that in this stage of my life, I refuse to do something just because I have to. Obviously, there are exceptions. Like I have to show up to work, right? I have to go to the grocery store when I don't want to. There's certain survival things that that we have to do to live. But I really do think that a big part of learning and growing and evolving is not just doing things out of duty because um, those things will just burn you out. They'll just burn you out. Yeah. And I'm learning about what it, what it means to do things out of desire and not just out of duty. And I, I can already hear in the back of my head for the people that I grew up with saying, well, if you follow your heart too much, that's going to lead you astray. And my response to that would be, I'm not saying that doing, I'm not saying that the answer is do whatever you want, whenever you want it. I'm saying it's important to understand that the divine is living inside of us. And that means we can learn to, um, we can learn to trust the voice within us. It also doesn't mean that we don't get to listen to other voices. Like I'm not saying we're never accountable to other people, but nobody should force us to do something that we want to do that we don't want to do. So for me, that's what I'm uh, in this stage of my life. That's what I'm, I'm trying to listen to the voice of desire and the voice and the voice of my own intuition. Mm. And, and it's hard. It's hard when you have, here's the problem. And then I'll shut up for a second, but, but here's the problem. The problem is when you've experienced wounding and trauma, you don't know what that voice is. It's not that you, you don't even know it because you are living in a reality that is so foreign to you trusting yourself. So the first problem that needs to be solved is what is that voice? Well, unfortunately, the only way that comes out is by good therapy or good spiritual direction or good wisdom, because you're not going to learn that within yourself if you haven't been modeling or practicing what that is. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, I was nodding my head so much. Um, in that, <laughs> that when you were talking, I, um, I, I remember two years ago, um, I was doing embodiment coaching and uh, internal family systems therapy at the same time, uh, and I'm still doing internal family systems therapy. Um, but part of that was I love IFS. You yeah. were talking about IFS, right? Yeah, IFS. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's brilliant. Yeah, uh, and I was doing it at the same time, and it was, and so it was all about embodiment and. To, learning to treat my body as a person and talk to my body as a person and be in tune, my intuition. And um, one of the things I remember talking to my embodiment coach about was duty versus desire. Like I realized that my whole life I had done my duty. I had done what was expected of me or what I had to do or what other people expected me to do or um, 
of, you know, like what you are meant to do. Right? I had never, literally never decided what I want to do. I had never even spent time thinking about this is what I want, regardless of what anyone else thinks. I had never done that. And I, and it, it, you know, I'm still working on that. I, I actually remember journaling the other day something about what, what do I want? I, I don't know. Um, do you feel like, do you feel like you didn't do that because you thought it was selfish? Yeah. Like, why do you think? Absolutely. I was yeah. told it was, you're not allowed to do what you want. You have to do what God wants. And what God wants is, and there's this thing that, that went, that goes around like, Oh, if you want it, that means God doesn't want it. And if you don't want it, that means God wants what you like. It was all that, that was like, and it was like, it was intended as like a joke. Oh, it's God's sense of humor. Like, no, it's just squashing people's desires. Like, if, if God Correct. made, if you believe that God made people, then why would He make them with desires that they couldn't then express? What just sort of give them up? Right? That makes no sense whatsoever. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, absolutely no sense. Uh, in hindsight, of course, it's ridiculous. But like at the time, I was fully embedded in all of that, right? Um, so all the mm. things that I did, even in my writing, was because oh, this is what God wants me to do. I have to do it. I'm good at it, therefore I have to do it. Yes. I have to be a successful author. I have to sell lots of books, and that really like messed up my writing. It, I actually got a trauma wound from writing um, because of the expectations that I put on it, and because of the kind of writer I thought I had to be. And writing is something right. I love and that I am good at, right? But because I wasn't allowed to explore that in relation to my desires and uh, I had to do it and I, and I was kind of, you know, frog-marched and, you know, put into a peg, uh, put into a hole where I had to, you know, where I had to write a certain kind of thing and in a certain kind of way for a certain kind of audience. Um, it kind of messed that up for me. Um, I'm only now starting to follow my curiosity in my in my creativity again. You know, yeah. the podcast. This podcast. The reason this exists, and I still do it, and I love it, is because it it wasn't any of that. I started this podcast out of pure pure curiosity. That's all. Yeah. That's that. <laughs> I, I didn't have any grand plans for it. I didn't think I didn't think I'd be doing it six years later. That's for sure. Um, I, and you know, I was just curious, and I thought this might be interesting. It might be fun. I'll try it for a bit, you know, um, and see what happens. And here we are, you know. And it turns out I'm quite good at it. And it turns out that I really enjoy it, and I'm still enjoying it. And I mm. don't care. I don't look at my stats. I don't look at my stats because I. I have no inclination to. I just enjoy making these podcasts and I enjoy mm-hmm. sharing them. And that's that's it. Um, that's why I'm still doing <laughs> this. And like, it's an example, isn't it? Like, if like clearly, clearly, something in me wanted to do this. Something in me wanted to do this. I just didn't know, didn't know it, right? And mm. with my curiosity, and here I am. And that's why I tell people in relation to creativity, just follow your curiosity. Like, correct. And correct see what happens it's a good way to live life you know obviously keep within moral and ethical boundaries and stay safe and all of those things um mm. but um but for like you, are you fa- yeah are you familiar with joseph campbell absolutely Have you followed I love any? Joseph campbell i've read i've read so some he- of his books and documentaries and yeah yeah i understand all that yeah so he talks about this right where he he was doing lectures at Notre Dame and Mm. he's all about, you know, spiritual transformation and, you know, the hero's journey. And we all kind of go on this, on this journey. And somebody asked him, (laughs) is there any way to jumpstart that transformation? You know, like I'm a young, I think the person was asking, I'm a young person and I want, I don't want to wait until midlife, you know, because there's this whole concept in Jungian psychology about the second half of life. Mm, so yeah, he said, um, do yeah. I, do I have to, do I have to, how do I essentially fast track this? It's a very American question, right? We just want shortcuts all the time. But uh, yeah. he said, he said, I do actually have an answer for you. He said, follow your bliss. 
which is essentially like follow your heart, follow, just follow what excites you and what brings you life, like follow your intuition. And I remember when I first started deconstructing, I, I tell people that my gateway drug was Brian Zahn. He was the person that I was introduced to. I don't know if you've heard of Brian, but um, he's a pastor in, here in uh, the U.S. And he mm. was talking about just lots of these things about deconstruction. And, and I remember being attracted to what he was saying. And, you know, Brian, Brian opened the door to me to a new world of Christian spirituality that I had never, ever been introduced to. Like, I, I just didn't even know that world was out there. And um, there's a following of your own heart and your own intuition that is not a bad thing. It's not. But unfortunately, we have a whole generation of people that have been told that who they are, and this has to do with attachment, who they are, it's not good enough. And they need a God and a savior to place his or her thoughts into them so that they can live life in a holy way. That that does so much damage to people because you're essentially telling people that who they are is not good enough and that yeah. they need somebody they need somebody to get the terribleness and wickedness out of them. What I believe in, and this is this is um, people that are much smarter also believe this. So this is not just my theory. I believe that all of us have inherent goodness. When we were born, we were born with inherent goodness and love. Now, what happens is all of us have wounding. So when we grow up. Even if we grew up in the best home ever, all of us come out of childhood wounded. We have some level of wounding that's part of us. So the way that we deal with that wounding is by engaging in coping mechanisms, survival strategies, all kinds of things that are probably not healthy. What could some of those be? Fixations, hyper-focus, uh, withdrawing. Um, engaging in jealousy too much, I don't know, stealing, um, doing all of these things that can kind of make us feel whole again. So I think when the Bible talks about sin, it, it's talking about these things. It's talking about the way in which we are trying to heal ourselves because of the pain that we've experienced. But that theology is very different than the theology that, you know, the Calvinists in America believe in, which is you are damaged, terrible human that needs a savior that's going to come and rescue you from all of the terribleness of who you are. There's nothing attractive about that. There's nothing attractive about believing <laughs> that who you are is rotten. And so I think we need to, for people that are still in the Christian space, if that's you, and trying to, to do this in better ways in churches, I think a huge part of it has to be a theological shift. Because when you start telling people that they're bad and that they need somebody to make them feel better, I would say that that's a very unhealthy spirituality. It doesn't lead to wholeness. You're telling people that who they are isn't good. And that yeah. that's never good. Yeah. It, it's a spirituality that gets, it's codependent and where you get your value from what others tell you and from what you do. And that yes. is, that is, that's not just an unhealthy spirituality. It's an, it's an unhealthy way to live. Um, right. And because, and actually it ends up causing harm to lots of people. Um, right. And you being in unhealth as well and, um, or people being in unhealth. Mm -hmm. It's, and I know that from experience and I've seen it in other people and um, it's very sad when you see it in other people and 
you want to help them, but you know that there's nothing you can do. Um, Correct. Um, but yeah, you're right. Absolutely. You know, this kind of, it seems very strange to me now that, that you would actually act actively believe that you are, you would actually believe that you are less than human in a sense. So you Mm -hmm. actively dehumanize yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, and see, see this as a good thing because, oh, it's okay because God loves me. Um, but I'm inherently bad, you know. That 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 doesn't. That's such a harmful way to see the world and to see other people and yeah. yourself. And um, and it's not true. It's not true. Everyone, is, a, everyone belongs. Everyone is loved. Everyone is accepted. Um, uh, everyone is valuable and precious, um, just as they are. Yeah. Um, you know. Do you, do you feel? I've heard, I've heard that, and I guess it just depends what kind of church circles you were a part of. Hmm. But one of the things that I've heard um, is that evangelicalism, as it is known here in America, is quite different than than evangelicalism in Great Britain. That's true. Is that, That's okay. True. I mean, our culture is much more secular here. Uh, um yeah um religion doesn't really get involved in politics at all abortion is not is not a political issue at all it's not an issue um and most people are not christians um uh, i think there's only one one or two percent of people who call themselves church going christians um especially in london it's very multicultural very diverse um i would say and i mean but there are pockets like individual churches or groups of churches which can be quite you know um like evangelical light (laughs) i would Mm. say or um because it's because their theology is nothing like as quite as harsh as i would say american evangelicalism um and there's also some progressive there's a lot of progressive christianity here but it's still ultimately christianity uh, it still actually ultimately says that you you need forgiveness and you need deliver like deliverance from your sins even progressive christianity mm. says that um here so um wow. there's so it's it's not a, I wouldn't say it's anything like as like it is in America. Um, having been to an evangelical church in America, um, it was much more extreme than anything I've experienced here. Um, although we have Hillsong here, but that's not many. There aren't many Hillsong churches <laughs> here. Uh, <laughs> I've, I've, it's really interesting because there's yeah. among people that deconstruct here, and I wonder what your opinion on this is, but. You know, N.T. Wright is a huge name here in America. Um, mm. And I, I've always wondered if if Brits see N.T. Wright differently than they... Because I think N.T. Wright helped a lot of people, especially Surprised by God, that book he wrote where he was essentially yeah, saying... One, yeah. and, I, and for me, N.T. Wright is kind of like the... I know that the, he's very different than the liturgists but he was very helpful in a season of my life where the things that he was writing were completely blowing my mind. But mm-hmm. now that I read back some of his stuff and I'm like, yeah, maybe I've just become way too progressive for even into. So it's, I, I've I always, that's I've a always lot of people's experiences. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's my experience here in T. Wright. That's where it was like, I went through the phase where oh, I might be interested in this and then, now I'm like way beyond that, and like like no, yeah. It's, so yeah, I mean, I'm not sure what element of Christianity he really belongs to. It's there seems to be mm. a kind of progressive evangelicalism here, which seems to have elements of evangelical styles of church, but a slightly more progressive theology, right? Um, as in, yeah, women are equal with men. Um, women in leadership, um, 
Some may even be LGBTQ affirming as well. Um, but there's still a lot of elements of what I call traditional Christianity. You know, um, it's yeah, it's very complicated here. Um, it's it, it is different. It is different, I think. But I thought so. But it's not. I thought so. But it's not. <laughs> it's not. It's not all like brilliant here either. I mean, like I I, I was in a what I thought was a progressive church, but became less and less progressive, and I ended up being spiritually abused in that church. So, um, and actually, I would say it's, in style, it's evangelical. That's theology is not completely evangelical. Um, yeah, so it's it's a bit complicated here, but certainly it's a much more secular culture, I would say. That makes sense. That makes sense. So, yeah. This has been really great. I really enjoyed this conversation. This has been fantastic. Yeah, me too. I've enjoyed it too. I've enjoyed it too. You you have a very natural way of just having a conversation, you know, and so which is what I enjoy. Which is that's kind of how I'm wired too. Great. Um, I've been on podcasts before where it's like here are all the questions, and I I enjoyed that, but I also I really I enjoy just kind of talking and chatting and conversating so yeah I, I yeah that's one thing i tried to do with this podcast is kind of reclaim the the, the lost art of conversation because uh rather than just do kind of formal interviews uh because i always think when you have when you just try and have a normal conversation you can go places that you wouldn't expect and discover new mm. things which is um yeah there's more curiosity in uh, in conversation i think so i agree I agree. <laughs> so where can people find you online? Um, I'm, I'm mostly active on, I was doing a lot with TikTok. I'm, I'm not as much anymore. So Twitter is probably a good space um, for, for people to find me. And, and they can, they can email me as well. And I, I can provide, you know, I can provide you with, with my email address of if somebody wants to contact me. Um, and then if you're in North Carolina and you want therapy services, you know, people are welcome to reach out to, to my practice and we'd be happy to, to serve them in, in the best way we know how. Fantastic. So, um, yeah. And your handle on Twitter is ThomasFloyd23 if you want people, people want to check, check, yeah. check you out. Um, and um, I would highly recommend following Thomas. Um, he's really <laughs> great and good to interact with. So, yeah, um, thanks for coming on the show, Thomas, and uh, thanks for listening, for everybody. Sure.